Today's program was brought to you by Roth, Wisconsin, makers of the world's best cheese and pioneers in the U.S. artisan cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Welcome to our first show of 2017. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. My name's Darren Bresnitz. It is. Uh, we are joined by Michael Whiteman for, I think it's our seventh time together. It is. For, seven. our, for, seven. for our annual trend show. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm glad to be here. It's fun. Uh, we have enjoyed reading your trend report, uh, and we look back at last year, and it seems to be that this year is really evolving on a lot of the issues that you touched on last year. And where we wanted to start it was the Uberization and Amazonization of food. Uh, and kind of how it's becoming much more of a service and utility um, that adapts to the customer as opposed to going out to eat. Sure. Um, when we when we last left this subject, <laughs> which was a year ago, yes. uh, we were talking about the fact that uh, big companies like Uber and Amazon and smaller companies like Postmates and Grubhub and uh, 10 other names that are probably familiar to you, uh, have all uh, facilitated the entire country becoming one big couch potato uh, because people have discovered that they can uh, very easily order meals of restaurant quality uh, and have them delivered right to their couch. But what seems interesting is that while it was technology companies that got into it, it seems like the chefs have caught up, which I thought was the, one of the bigger developments and what's coming in, in the next year. That's correct. Uh, not only chefs, but small startups uh, that are focusing on, on restaurant-quality food. Uh, what, what fascinates us is uh, a term that we've uh, put into our trends list called restaurants without seats. Uh, and that is uh, going to change the way people eat in the year ahead and probably for the rest of the decade. Uh, and when I say restaurants without seats, I'm referring to people who are opening in offbeat locations where rent is cheap, uh, kitchens with, ha- with no front of the house but staffed with cooks and chefs uh, whose sole purpose is deliver, to deliver food to your living room uh, or to your dining room. And uh, they are now in locations where they don't have to worry about paying for uh, linens or for tableware or broken glasses or waiters or flowers or any of that stuff because there is no front of the house and they don't want you ever to find them. Uh, they're not interested in that. They're only interested in your email address and your <laughs> and your your physical address. There were a couple of good stories in 2016 of people trying to find these restaurants and realizing that it was a sham. <laughs> there's actually uh, uh, a comp- there's a company in New York that has eight. We we call them phantom restaurants. Uh, they've got eight phantom restaurants. They're they're web only. 
uh, they're delivery only. There is no location. Uh, the eight restaurants serve uh, eight different menu concepts out of two different kitchens, and they serve the entire city. And uh, go find them. Good luck. There's no address. <laughs> Another thing that's also coming from this is that the chefs are coming from a really strong food service point of view. I think when you could get something from Uber or Postmates, they just it was delivery. It was they would bring you food and that was it. But you can even see from David Chang and Ando, they actually are only cooking food that works well for delivery or developing types of packaging or making sure that there's ways that the food can travel uh, and be really good when you get it as opposed to just showing up and you hope it's not overcooked or doesn't continue or cooks on the back of the bike as they're delivering it. It's a, it's a very clever development. Uh, and, and you're right about cooks like and chefs like David Chang and, and others uh, who are – not merely just facilitating the movement of food from point A to point B, uh, but are creating food specifically so that it can travel well, uh, so that you're not you're not a plagued uh, at the end of the day by a soggy burrito. And oddly enough, the Philly cheesesteak is something that travels really, really well. It does. Uh, wh- and-, and by the way, uh, you know, the country itself uh, has been willing to compromise for decades now uh, about the quality of food that is delivered to to your homes uh think for example immediately of pizza i mean the, right. it's it's never a really good pizza yeah or noodles for that matter unless it's like you just expect that they're soggy or they're overcooked or they're kind of mushy and i think that this is where um amazon and uber and postmates are going to have to actually step up their game because people will begin to diver- differentiate and buy for the quality of these high level chefs now getting into something that has much better margins much better speed and delivers the quality people are used to i think that the place to really look is the big companies uh because they're investing lots and lots of money not just in the as you said the technology of moving food around uh but they're moving into creating their own food their own brands uh, and making them specifically for travel, uh, I, I, I can give you the beginnings of an example. Amazon has opened just last month uh, a store that's full of prepared foods, packaged foods, uh, with uh, no cashiers. Uh, you walk, you the walk, Amazon Go store. Yeah, you walk in with your smartphone, uh, yep. and uh, it knows what you've put into your bag. If you take something out of your bag because you decide you didn't want it and put it back on the shelf, it subtracts it, uh, and uh, you just leave. The bill will appear on your smartphone. It's- do you do you see a larger shift than in the the actual supply chain of the the ingredients, like the food itself? Like, do you see them having more control in the way that McDonald's, Burger King used to have control with that? Like, do you see like you know more natural food, less pesticides, more things like that, or are they just trying to do large-scale agriculture cheap just so they can compete uh, in the delivery service. Uh, Let me answer uh, a slightly different question, and then we can come back to that. Uh, I think the companies that you mentioned, like McDonald's or uh, Burger King or even the the casual chains like Chili's uh, and Red Lobster, uh, are becoming captive of the service companies around them. and by that I mean uh, you make your reservation on open table uh, that's a service uh, you order your food to go on uh, on your Apple phone that's a service or, or Google and that's a service uh, Postmates or Grubhub picks it up and takes it to your house and that's a service uh, so uh, what what's left for the restaurants is the dirty work 
of creating, preparing, and packaging the food uh, and paying commissions to all these other people who are bringing the customers to you. It's a very interesting change in, in how people shop. And the other thing that Darren and I were debating earlier is people turning their kitchens into businesses and actually cooking for you and being able to order that. We couldn't figure it out. And you said couch potato. I thought it was cool. Darren thinks it's lazy. So I think we're kind of split with the, the necessary well, time. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I don't think it's lazy. I just, the idea of having someone two doors down from you and you say, cook me some food, then bring it over to my house and I'm going to pay you. I think it's, it's not so much lazy. It's just I just never even thought of that being a possibility. Uh, well, you're you're both partially wrong. <laughs> okay, I couldn't, okay, resist, I couldn't resist that. Uh, there is a movement, and it, it's not a giant one, but it's growing, and it and it's important, and it, it's quite the opposite of what I said before. Uh, we were talking just a moment ago about restaurants without seats. Now we're talking about seats without restaurants. Uh, Companies like uh, Airbnb, just to take a, a, a big and familiar example, uh, are now working on end-to-end travel uh, arrangements. So if I happen to be traveling to London and I've put myself up at Airbnb, uh, a host somewhere in London, uh, Airbnb will also connect me with somebody in London who's registered with Airbnb who happens to run a dining room like a boarding house. Uh, and a bunch of strangers will show up uh, who've made reservations, paid in advance on their uh, smartphones, and uh, are eating home-cooked food uh, rather than going out to a restaurant. Uh, or if I'm, if I'm in Portugal... Uh, and, I, and I really don't know where to eat, but I want somebody to uh, show me what home cooking is like. Uh, there are websites that will connect me uh, to somebody who has a kitchen that's used to cooking for a lot of people. Uh, and I will go to somebody's house. And again, it's, a, it's, it's like a potluck dinner. Uh, and these things are, are cropping up all around the world. A very interesting way to uh, experience uh, a, a new form of consumer economy. But in, is this in many? I'm sorry. Go on. Go on. I was going to say, is this in many ways getting back to one authenticity in a dining experience, which has become a very important part of the dining experience, and two, making restaurants what they used to be, which used to be a special occasion. When going out to a restaurant, you, you would go out once a week, and it wasn't the idea of like we're going to go out to eat seven nights a week. Uh, it's 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 that, and it's also uh, let's try another one. Uh, I broke my leg, uh, or I'm, I'm sure. or or I'm recuperating from an operation, and I'm uh, I'm housebound for a week, uh, and I don't want to uh, call the local Chinese restaurant to have me deliver your soggy noodles, mm-hmm. uh, but I can find uh, somebody uh, on the web uh, who is nearby me. Uh, who will prepare seven meals a day, I mean seven meals a week for me, each one of them different, and they'll have the quality of being home-cooked. And do you think, I mean, with all this competition, obviously it's so new and people are getting into it with no need to make a business out of it. Do you think that this will consolidate, that this will just continue to have little niches, that people will just be happy to make 30 meals a week for people? Or where do you maybe see this five years from now in in a set hierarchy? Well, it's it's a little chaotic at the moment. Uh, chaos is good because good things come out of chaos. Uh, but uh, and I and I'm I'm quite certain that three quarters of the people who are cooking these meals at home uh, do not have uh, health department approved kitchens. 
so someday some will, someone will crack down on, on this. But there's, there are so many people who are nibbling at the edges of the food world, uh, either startups or people trying to invade other people's markets to capture their customers, uh, that uh, we, we, there could be big major changes coming in the next five years. But how do you how do you even compete if you have a real restaurant? It's tough, and it's getting tougher uh, because you're no longer just competing with other restaurants. You're competing with convenience stores. You're competing with Google. You're competing with Apple. You're competing with uh, Mary Jane down the road who's cooking dinner for friends. Uh, it, it It's becoming more and more fragmented as more and more people get into the food business. Uh, you know... The good thing about being in the food business is people have to eat. Uh, they don't have to go shopping. Uh, no. So uh, more and more people who are looking to uh, augment their sales, and, and when I say people, I mean department stores uh, and retail shops and uh, convenience stores and uh, any other form of, of Retail, where people used to go out to do something and then eat along the way, uh, are now trying to, cap- to capture the people uh, themselves rather than having them eat at restaurants. And you touched on this last year, and you touch on it again this year about essentially restaurants being surrounded by wolves. Um, it's grown even more so that you'll just find people who are almost convenient. You know, they want to go there, and people like Moleskin or high-quality brands that are beginning to add cafes that are not just your general cafe but actually have a high level of quality and food that essentially provides a two-in-one for people um, where they might, as opposed to go shopping and go out for lunch, they can have lunch while they're shopping. Uh, that's, that's quite true. Uh, Forty years ago or so, of course, nobody remembers this, but I'm older. Uh, 40, 40 years ago or so, uh, department stores threw out uh, all their food operations because they felt that they were uh, just taking up too much space and not terribly productive, and they were the old-fashioned tea rooms, and people didn't want to go to them anymore. Uh, and uh, the people who worked in the food department were not the same as the people who worked in the, uh, uh, the fashion departments. Uh, so uh, the result of that was that they sent all the people out into the mall to go eat. And uh, it took them 40 years to discover that once they sent them out into the mall, they didn't come back. So uh, in the last five years, department stores have ramped up uh, their food considerably. So that's one. Uh, the other, uh, which is a, a phenomenon of the last few years, is and you see this in the headlines uh, uh, at least once a week, of the department stores in this country shutting down. Uh, Sears, J.C. Penney, Macy's is closing 100 and some odd stores this year. Uh, Crazy. And it goes on and on and on. Uh, those are leaving big holes in shopping centers. So we're looking at shopping centers that are losing their anchors. And one of the ways that they're now trying to attract people is they're building big food halls in shopping centers to create a social experience. Uh, One of the things about food that's unique uh, is that uh, you can't have a social experience with food uh, unless you're out. Uh, If if you're sitting at home by yourself or with your wife or girlfriend um, and you order in, that's not a social experience. Uh, So if if you want to experience people, you've got to go out. So you find shopping centers adding food in a big way. Uh, you're going to see more uh, cinema chains adding real food. 
the big one here in New York is Alamo Draft House, which mm-hmm. just opened here in Brooklyn, uh, and they have several in, in other locations uh, where you sit in a the equivalent of a first-class airline seat. You get a menu, you order it, uh, and food comes, and uh, hey, guess what? It's, it's not Cracker Jacks. Well, you know what's interesting is no, Nighthawk Cinema did that in New York, and they were actually able to overturn an 80-year-old rule about serving alcohol in theaters in order to open up the doors for these other things. So they're also changing legislation and how people can experience going out for an evening. That's correct. But you do also, because- you do also kind of lose the magic of movie, dinner, drinks afterwards, you do it all at once, and then it's kind of just over. Well, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, not everybody has all the time in the world to go out and do uh, drinks, movie, and then dinner, uh, especially during the the week. So uh, this is a great way to get it all done at once. One of the more elegant things that you put into the trend report is the idea of death by a thousand cuts. Uh, and maybe you can just touch on that a little bit about how these cafes can int- how these stores can introduce cafes, but you know a Whole Foods can't introduce a store. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the um, the what what what's interesting to me is uh, that Whole Foods. Let's use Whole Foods. Whole Foods uh, is partnering with restaurants all across the country to open up little cafes or stands or bars uh, within the Whole Foods. Uh, the, the the overall Whole Foods store, so you got a you've got a sixty five thousand square foot Whole Foods store with twelve different places to eat, so it's now part restaurant and part food store. Uh, but if I've got a if I've got a restaurant, and it doesn't matter whether it's a chain restaurant or whether it's my own personal uh, place that I, I've created and run and loved, uh, I can't suddenly open up a Whole Foods department because it doesn't make any sense. Mm. Uh, and uh, so uh, we find retailers uh, doing interesting things with cafes. For example, um, if, you're, if you're young and trendy and you take your notes on a moleskin pad because that's what you have to have, uh, it's, it's a shame if you just do it on a piece of, on the back, on the back of an envelope. Um, if, if you're a moleskin customer uh, and you're in Europe, uh, you'll find some moleskins that have added cafes. Uh, why do they do that? Number one, that's added money, but that's not the real reason. Uh, they're doing that because your likelihood of buying something from moleskin in the way of paper goods uh, more than once a month is rather slim. Uh, but the likelihood of your coming to a moleskin cafe, if it's convenient and, and good, might be twice a week. Uh, so I, I automatically I've increased the frequency of people who are coming. Uh, and in addition to that, once they're there, oh, gee, I've got to get a gift from Mary. Uh, let's, let's, let's get one here. So uh, this kind of a synergy feeds on itself, but you, but you don't see a restaurant uh, logically adding a moleskin department. No. Do you see these additions of cafes to these retail spots as an actual long-term solution or just a short-term extension of the inevitable demise of their success and existence? I think, uh, I think it's a long-term trend be- in, in part because of what we said about 10 minutes ago, that the whole industry is in chaos uh, and being fractured in, in lots of unpredictable ways. So uh, I think more and more people are going to experiment with some form of 
attaching food to their basic business in order to get increased frequency from customers. One of the, my, I, guess my, I guess my question to that is that they can add the restaurants. Does that mean people will come? I mean, not like not every Mulkin may add a restaurant, but it might not be good enough to compete in the restaurant world. And, and so, add, do, you see, do you see the same shakeout of where some will succeed and some will fail, or is it because of this like new combination? They'll all do okay enough to to have some sort of shelf life. And to add on to that, you talk about Chibani opening up a branded store, Pepsi, whose restaurant I ate at. They're not necessarily good spots. I mean, they're also equally constrained by the fact that they have to use certain products or there's an underlying type of uh, mission that is not maybe necessarily giving the chef freedom. It's tied back to certain products. So do you think that that could also hem them in um, where other restaurants have a much more creative palate? Well, I I think you're – I think you just – (laughs) <laughs> you, you just took a sidetrack, yeah. uh, but, it's, but it, it, you, you took a detour, and it's a good one. Uh, there are branded companies that are planting the flag for their brands uh, that are restaurant-related, like, for example, Kellogg's opening a cereal store uh, in the middle of Times Square. Uh, Kellogg's is not going to make any money on that cereal store. Uh, any more than Hershey's makes any money on its store in Times Square. Uh, the idea is to plant the flag where tourists see you uh, and create enormous top-of-the-mind awareness. Uh, and more and more big brands uh, are doing this. So it, it's another form of competition for, uh, for restaurants. Uh, we're going to take a quick musical break, and then we're going to come back to continue talking food trends with Michael. This is a song from one of our favorite live performances, the band called Static Jacks. We'll be right back here on Snacky Tunes.
the first trend that you call out this year that I think is probably the most interesting and ties back into what we've already discussed is the falling food prices and how they are benefiting at-home cooks and killing restaurants. So let's take the track of why falling food prices are actually helping consumers, and then we can delve into why they're not so great for restaurants. Well, uh, we happen to be in a... a, a fairly long, long-term long situation where the prices of uh, basic commodities have been declining in this country. Uh, they aren't in other places in the world, but uh, things like corn, beef, chicken, eggs, cheese uh, have been declining all at once. Uh, and uh, so if you're a home cook, if you're feeding a family, uh, this translates into the lower prices at the supermarket. So it's clear that that's good for the consumer. The problem with restaurants is, compared to supermarkets where you go shopping for your food at home, the problem with restaurants is that they use a lot more labor than supermarkets do. They use a lot more labor per dollar of sales, and they use a lot more labor per square foot that they're paying rent on. So when the price of food falls, supermarkets can lower their prices and and advertise that they're lowering their prices. But when those same commodities fall for restaurants, restaurants still have to deal with the cost of rising labor and rising rent, uh, which these days is uh, more important than whether the cost of food is going down. So restaurants are behind the eight ball because they can't raise their prices too much, otherwise they open up a big gap between what it costs to eat in a restaurant and what it costs to shop for food at home. Uh, and that gap uh, is has become evident to consumers so that the number of people who are going to restaurants in the last six months has been declining. Well, you talked about last year about the death or the abolition of tipping, which has actually led to higher restaurant prices. So there are certain restaurants that can absorb the higher prices that you touch on being in a, a bubble. Uh, The restaurants that uh, are fairly trendy, uh, that are uh, oriented towards young people who are making a lot of money, uh, people in the techie world and the financial industry, uh, and people who, like you and your brother, who are just rolling in money. uh, (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, well, well, look, folks, hey, we're, we're sitting here in Roberta's in, in Bushwick in sure. what used to be the middle of nowhere. Uh, and I know when I get through with this broadcast, uh, I'm going to have to wait in line for a table unless you have some influence. We'll take care yeah, of we'll, you. We'll, 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 we'll take care of you. Uh, so uh, those kinds of restaurants are, are doing rather well. Uh, the question is, uh, how long can that keep up? Uh, <laughs> ask Mr. Trump. But I, think, do you, I guess my question is, what what sort of mindset or what even sort of unique point of view do you even need these days to open a restaurant um, and be successful and have it last for 5, 10, 15, 20 years? My late partner, Joe Baum, used to say that the definition of a classic restaurant was one that lasted the length of its lease. <laughs> Uh, the failure rate in, in the restaurant industry is enormous, uh, and uh, it takes uh, a certain level of lunacy and dedication to open a restaurant and make it work, uh, And uh, which is why most restaurants fail. Uh, the problem is that it's uh, it used to be a very easy industry to get into. 
because, sure. because the failure rate was so high that you could always open a restaurant on the bones of a dead one. Uh, so you would buy a restaurant uh, or take over a restaurant lease where space had failed and the air conditioning is there and the exhaust is there and the plumbing, um, and you just stick a new restaurant into it. Uh, and I think that a lot of this happened after the last ec economic collapse uh, in 2008 uh, when suddenly there was a, a huge uh, supply of vacant restaurants uh, and real estate values had plummeted and so you could get a favorable lease uh, and run a restaurant. Uh, what, what's happening today is that uh, real estate values have gone up for the last four or five years and landlords are uh, taking advantage of that by doing what would be natural for them to raise their rents. Uh, so it becomes uh, economically uh, more tenuous to open up a restaurant today. There's um, the, the guys down in, in Houston who run Underbelly, their, their new concept is a restaurant that is only for five years, which was the only amount of length that they could get uh, mm -hmm. for the lease. And I wonder if the idea of a restaurant existing forever, it's just maybe it's just no longer feasible. And maybe the idea is you're going to open up a restaurant for a couple of years, knowing that you're going to have to open up a new space after that. Um, do you see that as factoring into something where, like, food and restaurants, especially in department stores or Amazon or Uber, like the whole thing where they just know that they're going to be quickly changing their approach to their food and service, and that just becomes part of what it means to be in the food business now. Well, partly. Uh, if, uh, if I were concerned that the restaurant uh, that I was thinking of would only last for five years, uh, because then it, it would uh, it would die just a natural death because of its life cycle. Uh, I would still want a ten or a fifteen year lease, because if that restaurant died, uh, why wouldn't I want to take advantage of a good lease and put another restaurant in there? Uh, so sure. I so I I think what what you're referring to uh, in Houston, uh, and the, and these are smart guys, uh, they have looked at what it takes to make money in a five-year lease and amortize the cost of a restaurant and work backwards and says, okay, well, we can only spend $100 a square foot. Or if it's a 5,000-square-foot restaurant, we can only spend half a million dollars on this place. Uh, and uh, if we can bring it in for that, uh, at the end of five years, we can throw it away and, and know we made money. I mean, it's really... But doesn't that, doesn't that come into the idea of, like, pop-ups or things like that, where then the customer is also understanding that it's, it's not going to be, you know, wood and china and, like, the highest-end crystals because they know it's sort of temporary, and the, the customer understands it's sort of, like, fleeting nature. You know, you've put, you've put your finger on something else. Uh, the idea of, you know, fine polished wood and, and crystal and fine yeah. china, uh, they're pretty much gone. Uh, it has it has very little. Oh, yeah. It's very has very little to do with whether it's a pop up or not, or how long the lease is. It has to do with the fact that uh, we don't eat that way anymore, and uh, we're spending the same prices uh, in uh, places where there's a really good chef who's turning out really good food, uh, but the atmosphere is casual, uh, and uh, it has none of the pretenses and none of the trappings of what used to be called, quote-unquote, fine dining. 
I mean, you do also have, though, again, to go back to this bubble, the Cuckoo, the Stephen Starr restaurant that was just named New York Times Best Restaurant of the Year, which has a $200,000 a year line item on candles and linen and roan. So there are the, some small restaurants that do fall into that, but you do, I agree, see the rise of the fast casual, people who can get this high-quality food and not have to have all the trappings that would get you know, the three-star or whatever reviews. Well, you know, there's something about Cuckoo that splits the difference. Uh, yeah, it has fine china, and it's got linens, and it's got a lot of waiters walking around, and busboys, and captains, uh, and uh, and a serious wine list, uh, and a lot of chandeliers. Uh, but if you look around at the sh- at the rest of the place, there's not much in the way of expensive finishing. Uh, it's it, it's pretty bare bones with a uh, with a lot of decor to take your mind off the fact that it's bare bones. Uh, a lot of carpenters didn't build a lot of millwork in, in that restaurant. <laughs> but isn't it nice to have, I mean, as far as design, I think back to um, uh, Momofuku's Sound Bar. You know, you come in and there's arguably that one giant piece of artwork, and it's pretty bare bones, but the food is outstanding. And, and to me, it's like, I'd rather have one or two big statement pieces or chandeliers and pay more for the food than for you know, high-end decor and paying off the plates and the napkins and things like that. Oh, I, I agree. And by the way, the difference uh, between uh, the casual-looking places uh, and the fancy upscale-looking places is translated into uh, not just price, but it, it, it translates into a different kind of attitude of why you went there in the first place. And uh, if you were going to uh, some place that resembled uh, an old-fashioned French restaurant, which Le Cucou is not, uh, it, but if you were going to uh, uh, Shea something or other in Minneapolis or Detroit, uh, it would have been a French restaurant with chandeliers, uh, would, have, would have had red-flocked wallpaper, uh, it would have had thick carpets on the floor, uh, it would have had waiters in tuxedos, and it would have had a Frenchman standing at the door with his nose in the air. Uh, those places are dead. Uh, there, there are very few left uh, because of our attitude and their attitude. We don't like their attitude, and we want to be more casual in uh, the way we, you know, we don't have to feel like we're sitting up in our chair. Uh, I can slouch and still have caviar. One of the other things that's been in decline has been the consumption of meat. There's also been a really interesting rise in artisanal vegetable butchers, which you touch on, which is one of my favorite stories. To emerge from 2016 and to arise and want to visit in 2017, especially in the uh, Herbaceous Butcher in Minneapolis, which is starred on my Google Maps to go travel to. So can you touch on what these um, butchers are doing and how they still have the cleaver in hand, but how they're producing their and curating their vegetable selection? Uh, That's a big trend um, and you you just touched on a little corner of it uh, the the bigger trend is the focus on vegetables uh, and uh, this has been building for a decade uh, but uh, in the last year or so it's suddenly become really important uh, there are a fair number of restaurants in this country uh, have that have put at least equal focus on vegetables as they have on protein and there are some restaurants that are only serving vegetables, but also getting the same care uh, that and, and uh, talent applied to them uh, that you would have found in uh, 
the French restaurant with the chandeliers. Uh, and they become very exciting places to eat. because. And you don't go there because I, I, I feel like I only want to eat vegetables tonight. Uh, I go there because the food's really good. They have a good wine list. The vibes are good. Uh, and it, it, it doesn't feel like a, rest, a restaurant of 20 years ago that was health food. Uh, where you felt you were doing penance, uh, and and that that was going to make you feel healthier. Uh, so this this is this is real cooking with real chefs and real food and real sauces, uh, and uh, you, uh, you you suddenly discover you're uh, not even aware that you're missing uh, the fish or the shrimp or the or the beef. I still remember back to Darren and mine's 30th birthday when we went to Blue Hill Stone Barns, and the only dish I can really remember is the parsnip cake that they made for us um, as part of the, not even a dessert, as a, as a main That's course. That's the only dish you can remember? That is the only dish that I can remember. So Wow. Good thing go, we got a 12-course dinner. Good thing we got a 12-course dinner. So to go back, and, and these uh, these butchers are not just making kind of mush and bowls or grain and bowls. They're actually trying to make things that look like ribs, uh, patties, chicken, duck, etc. Well, that, that, that's a different thing. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you go to a restaurant like Nick's mm-hmm. uh, in New York uh, or Veg uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, you will get vegetables that are cooked and still look like vegetables. They're not imitation mm-hmm. anything. They're not pretending to be anything other than themselves in a great presentation with a lot of talent applied to them and uh so you you you, when you eat them uh you don't get the sense that you're having false uh spare ribs uh or uh something made with uh uh, tofu that's supposed to represent something else Uh, the other side of this coin and i'm coming back to your vegetarian butcher uh there are a number of places around the world uh using the the term vegetarian butcher who are fabricating out of tempeh and soy and uh, gluten and uh, and other unmentionable things, uh, food that looks like spare ribs, uh, looks like hamburgers, looks like bacon, uh, looks like uh, barbecued beef, uh, but is made from uh, plant matter. Uh, I, I suppose a rhetorical question is, if, if somebody really doesn't want to eat meat, uh, yeah. why... Would they go out uh, to shop for something that looks like spare herbs but isn't? I think that people uh, – and I remember this from one of my vegan friends who came to New York nine years ago. And I, there was this place in Washington Square that he wanted to go to because it was all – Red bamboo. Red bamboo. Red bamboo. That really was all drumsticks and ribs and everything. This was nine years ago, and he was so excited to get to try to get back. He didn't want to eat meat anymore, but he missed – the texture. He missed eating wings. He missed eating chicken. So I think it depends on why you go vegetarian, that some people want to go for health reasons or for ethical reasons, but it doesn't mean that they didn't enjoy eating meat at the time. So I think you find somewhere in the middle of vegetables, presented like vegetables, like you said at Nick's, but also sometimes people just want to have a rib, even <laughs> if it's not coming from any type of animal. Well, I was very sly. <laughs> I, I, I said it, yeah. was, a, I said it yeah. was a rhetorical yeah. question. And, and you touch on Beyond Meat as well, which promotes itself as the vegetable burger that bleeds, which is a yeah. really in, intense uh, way to go about it. I don't even know if I eat my burgers and look for the blood running out of it, maybe juices, but to make something that goes so far to mimic um, 
dead animal blood is really uh, an extreme way, but they, they, they've sold out. They've got investment from major food corporations, yes. and they, they see a market for that. They're a, they're, yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like it's big business, you know? There are, there are two companies that are uh, working on uh, what we call burgers that bleed, uh, and they're plant-based foods uh, that are trying to be as close to uh, the texture and flavor and look of meat as they can possibly be. Uh, and they're getting massive amounts of investment from Silicon Valley, uh, I guess because there's no more money left in microchips. Uh, and uh, they're spending vast amounts of research and development dollars on, on these kinds of foods. What, what I find peculiar is... Did we lose somebody? No. Oh, what I what I find peculiar uh, is that on the one hand we see consumers really avid about getting what they call clean food or food with clean labels with no preservatives, no additives, no chemicals, uh, nothing artificial, nothing that doesn't belong there. And the and the, you pick up a package and the ingredients should be as simple as it possibly could be. And then on the other hand, uh, we have all this investment money going into these bleeding burgers, and I'm going to read you the ingredients uh, of what people are flocking to. Uh, so there's one bleeding plant-based burger whose ingredients consist of pea protein isolate, expeller-pressed canola oil, refined coconut oil, water, yeast <laughs> extract, maltodextrin, natural flavors, gum arabic, safflower oil, salt, succinic acid, acidic acid, non-GMO modified starch, cellulose from bamboo, methyl cellulose, potato starch, beet juice extract, ascorbic acid. I'm not done. <laughs> we, the, the point funny, is taken. I, I don't think when Dan Barber and Michael Fulton were saying, eat less meat, eat more vegetables, that's exactly what they were thinking of. I don't think they were thinking of the highly processed fake meat. I don't think they were either. <laughs> but one can argue that it's, again, I think this is the chaos that you were referencing earlier, where people are trying to find the right balance of how do they live a uh, less impactful lifestyle while still kind of being healthy, and it's still this is the other extreme of of what you're discussing. Yeah, and there's, there's even a, a further extreme, uh, and those are the people who are trying, uh, and and with some modest success, trying to build beef beef in the lab using uh, cells from animals. Uh, so if you if you take the right cell from the right place in in a, in a cow and nurture it in a Petri dish and whatever chemicals you need to do to make a cell grow, uh, and, and this cell multiplies in the right way, uh, it will give you meat. Uh, it, will also give, it, will, it will also give you leather. Uh, yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, you can have a handbag uh, and you can have a hamburger without killing an animal. And they made, the first one was something like $20,000 to eat. And I'm sure as the costs go down, people will be more and more intrigued to try something that's grown in that way that doesn't have, uh, well, I mean, ethical questions arise, but different ethical questions than killing of a live animal. Well, it's not even just killing live animals. It's uh, all, of the, uh, all of the cow poop, 
uh, yes, and, uh, and, and all of the methane that comes along with that, and it's all of the uh, intensely raised chickens and pigs who pollute the water and the soil. Uh, it's all yeah. that. It's all that fertilizer that doesn't have to be applied to the food that's fed to the cow. You know, it's 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 really a, a very big deal if it works. We're going to take one more musical break, and then we're going to come back and do our favorite part of this trend show, which is the buzzwords. This is a track from Wall, live on Snacky Tunes. We'll be right back. tasted the world's best cheese? Grand Cru Sirchois is the 2016 World Cheese Champion. Our partners at Roth, Wisconsin make this gorgeous alpine-style cheese in the rolling hills of Greene County, Wisconsin. Grand Cru Sirchois is produced by hand in Swiss copper vats and finished by aging on spruce planks. The quality milk and careful craftsmanship bring out the award-winning light floral notes, nutty undertones, a hint of fruitiness, and a mellow finish. Perfect with Riesling and Muscat, Grand Cru Sirchois is a guaranteed hit for any occasion. Check out their other offerings at RothCheese.com. You'll discover Buttermilk Blue and their newest release, Prairie Sunset, the golden-hued love child of Mimolette and Gouda. You'll also find recipes like the Raclette Reuben and Tomato Tartlets. Everything you need to know about the world's best cheese is at RothCheese.com. Our favorite buzzword to come out for 2017 is drone delivery oh yeah we are going to be in new zealand in february and we are super excited to try to get a domino drone delivery but we would love for you to expand upon how this is happening and has there been any reports back on if the food maintains its quality or it's more just the novelty of getting a drone to drop off something for you to eat uh right now it's uh it's largely a novelty but but uh, the people in the drone business are not kidding around. Uh, Amazon uh, has uh, long been working on a system of delivering product to your home via drone uh, because it's too expensive 
to have trucks tied up, uh, burning gasoline and stuck in traffic uh, and making 50, 60 different stops uh, with a, uh, a unionized driver who has uh, gets paid a lot of money plus benefits plus uh, Social Security and, and 401Ks. So... Uh, uh, and by and by the way, I, I, some of these big companies are looking at drones as a way of just getting merchandise from point A to point B within their own warehouses. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure it's worth going to a, <laughs> the other end of the world to watch a piece of pizza being delivered by Amazon. Uh, it might be. It might be. But uh, uh, Amazon just delivered uh, a, a package by drone of, of food somewhere in, in England. It was just three weeks ago. Uh, yeah, they have uh, two customers right now in that thing, and they're going to expand to a few dozen and then hopefully the world. They're also looking into floating uh, air uh, warehouses that drones will then depart from from the sky already. Uh, well, why not? Uh, sure. But, uh, you know, does it, it, it doesn't make any economic sense now. Uh, but, you know, the, the first all-electric car didn't make economic sense either. Uh, sure. But, um, you know, Tesla's now churning them out, and they're, they're really fun to drive. Uh, I'm not sure I want to live underneath a, a, a place where no. a lot of drones happen to come at the same time because it's dinner time. Or a drone, like just Chinese takeout, just drops on your head. <laughs> so next buzzword up is French dip, French dip sandwiches, which you say for some reason... However, one of our past guests um, not too long ago just opened up a new French chip sandwich called Maison Pickle, which I was at last week, and it was wonderful. So it was great to see that that is one of the trends on this list. You know, I've, I've been wanting to get there. Uh, and it, it is for no particular – there may be a reason why people are uh, – putting French dips back on the menu. I have no idea what the reason is. Uh, but I can tell you we're working on a diner uh, in New York, a big diner. Uh, and we're putting three French dip sandwiches on, uh, one of which uh, is, uh, is, is, <laughs> uh, is an interesting one. Uh, we're stealing a sandwich from uh, the Mexican world called torta ahogado, uh, which means a sandwich that's been drunken. Uh, and uh, basically what you're getting is uh, a whole bunch of Mexican Mexican ingredients in a baguette that comes in a bowl uh, with a very fiery uh, tomato-based chili sauce. Uh, and you dip, you dip the sandwich in the sauce, and then you eat the sandwich. Uh, it, it's going to be fun, but don't ask me why. <laughs> yeah, I can't understand either. I mean, the sandwiches were also not cheap. It was high-end ingredients. I mean, the... The most expensive one had foie gras on it. It was $36, but it was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're doing one uh, which is the equivalent of a cheesesteak, uh, except we're using prime rib. Uh, so uh, <laughs> a real prime rib, not a faux one. Uh, but there's another, there's another buzzword uh, which uh, derives from the last commercial we just listened to, your, your cheese commercial, uh, raclette. Uh, we're seeing and, and using, by the way, more and more raclette. Uh, it's popping up around around the country. I had a wonderful raclette dinner in Germany, which is a tradition around the holidays, uh, and super fun as well. Especially the grilled meat, and it's also a lot more control over your own dining experience. Yeah, but I'm I'm, I'm just talking about the use of the cheese rather than the traditional oh, raclette dinner. Uh, it, it it makes a very good hamburger. Next up, yeah, um, Asian bakeries. Dinner, uh, 
Next up is Asian bakeries, which we have always been going to through our mother, who has dragged us to them in all the Chinatowns all over the country. Why do you think that these are going to be on the rise? They've always been there. What What's changed? They've always been there. Uh, one of the interesting cities to go to in, in this country is Atlanta, uh, which uh, I guess because of my migration reasons, uh, Atlanta has a, a large number of Korean bakeries. Uh, but I, I think in, in general, Korean bake, uh, Asian bakeries are on the rise. They've always been there, but they're now adding things uh, that you can pick up as a snack. Uh, and they're part American and they're part Asian, uh, and and uh, they mix very well. So you can you can go into uh, 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 an Asian bakery and get uh, a hot dog wrapped in a croissant, uh, just to pick a basic example. Uh, and they're adding more and more uh, savory stuff rather than just sweet stuff, uh, and that's changing the nature of who goes in there and when you go in. So I think we're going to see more and more of them. You're also seeing uh, Asian uh, fast food places uh, opening with Asian desserts and uh, Asian coffee places and the bubble tea places uh, that are also serving Asian pastries. Another word on here you just have standing by itself is celery. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is innovating in the world of celery? I have to tell you, <laughs> you're not the first person to ask me that question. Uh, and uh, it was an entirely arbitrary inclusion. Uh, and that's why it's sitting there just by itself. Uh, I'm suddenly seeing celery used back in salads. Uh, I'm seeing celery used uh, in places where crunch is needed. Uh, and uh, I just have a sense that chefs are rediscovering the, something like celery, as they did a couple of years ago when they rediscovered radishes. Are we going to see a deconstructed high-end ants on a log turning up <laughs> um, <laughs> restaurants? No, you might see a deconstructed Waldorf salad. <laughs> uh, another vegetable that we see in there that we've also been a huge fan of is cauliflower, um, which seems to be popping up everywhere. Um, the new Kismet opening up uh, from the Matt Capper team in L.A. is leading with a couple of cauliflower dishes. Why is that uh, vegetable on the rise? It's, uh, it's a vegetable that has a fairly neutral flavor uh, that you can do all kinds of things with. Uh, somebody a few years ago started uh, slicing cauliflower steaks out of a head of mm. cauliflower and serving them as steak. Uh, but... Uh, I, I, I see cauliflower with all kinds of flavors now. Uh, if you go to an Indian restaurant, uh, in the first courses, you're going to find some form of, of, of cauliflower with uh, curried spices on them. Uh, if you go to a Chinese restaurant, you're going to find General Tso's cauliflower. Uh, it's because it's neutral. Uh, it's because it's uh, probably more fun to eat than uh, George Bush's broccoli. Uh, which he said he would never eat again in his life after he became president. Uh, and uh, and it's a vegetable. <laughs> Another thing on here is clean label cold cuts, which you touched on a little bit earlier as well. Uh, when, uh, when I was a kid, uh, my mother avoided buying things like bologna and salami, uh, because they had all kinds of 
bad things in them, uh, preservatives and chemicals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you now find uh, more and more of the uh, big and, and new small companies uh, producing uh, ham, uh, bacon uh, that are not cured, for example. There's no nitrites in them. Uh, the, the idea that I said before that people want cleaner and cleaner food uh, is now uh, being translated into uh, what used to be bad for you snacks. War on waste, pickling everything. <laughs> well, the war on waste um, is starting to get to be a serious thing. Uh, somewhere between a third and a half of the food that's grown or produced in this country gets thrown away uh, because because we're rich and profligate. Uh, uh, and, and it gets thrown away in restaurants because they either make too much food or they put too much food on the plate and you can't eat it. Uh, it gets thrown away in your house because uh, it, the sell-by date passed yesterday and you're afraid to eat it even though it's perfectly fine. Uh, or you bought too much of something, and uh, uh, look, there are some there are some people in this country, lots of them, uh, who uh, can't deal with leftovers. Uh, there's something in their mind that's socially wrong about uh, serving the same food the next day, so it goes out. Uh, if you're in India, uh, half the food that's produced uh, goes to waste for completely different reasons. They don't have refrigeration. Uh, in, in proper quantity. The roads are so bad uh, that the trucks take twice as long to get the food to you. Uh, the storage is bad, and so uh, you get a lot of vermin and insects uh, in the food, and it spoils. So somewhere in, around the world, uh, between a third and a half of the food is thrown away. Uh, if, if you work backwards and figure out how much farmland that translates into and how much fertilizer and how many trucks had to move things from point A to point B in order to get the food to you so it could be thrown away, uh, you come to something that looks like an ecological disaster. And uh, it, if, if you now look again uh, 30 years from now or 20 years from now what the population will be in 2050 and you say if we throw a third of the food away that we need to feed another what? 10 billion people, uh, that's a lot of stuff to throw away. And so uh, there is a huge amount of attention on how we can become more efficient in what we grow and how we transport it and, uh, and how we eat it. Uh, and it, 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 it really is an ethical issue. There's a great app that just came out, or it's been started in the UK called Too Good To Go, where it connects restaurants who have extra food at the end of the day and they do priced full meals for cheaper uh, dollar amounts and allow people to come pick them up, which helps cut down on food waste. And it's being rolled out in Berlin and uh, across the UK and slowly moving into the States as well. Yes, uh, you're, you're, you're seeing more of that. Uh, I, I was looking the other day at the website of a food distributor here in New York called Baldor, uh, and they uh, have taken up a program that uh, Baldor is a big distributor of fruits and vegetables here. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a program now of zero waste. Uh, nothing goes in the garbage. It, it may go to a compost heap somewhere, but it doesn't go in the garbage. Uh, it may go to uh, all the bruised fruit, it may go to people who are making juices, uh, for example, if they can't sell it 
to a restaurant. So Amazing. I, so we, 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 we're going to see more and more of that, and it's and it's a good thing. The last one we're going to wrap up on is a childhood food favorite of ours: newfangled, reinvented cottage cheese. <laughs> Love a good bowl of cottage cheese. Uh, there are a couple of companies, one from Israel, there's one in California, and there's a third somewhere else, I just can't think of it at the moment, uh, that are trying to resurrect cottage cheese in the same fashion that uh, yogurt got, got resurrected. Uh, yogurt was uh, originally a food that you didn't like uh, until they managed to add sweet and savory things to it uh, and get the water out of it. Uh, and uh, talk to you about the, how, how good it is for you. Uh, cottage cheese is, is uh, a latecomer, uh, but I think uh, it, it has the same kind of legs that yogurt could. Well, we and want, I like it. I mean, I like it too. Well, we want to thank you for coming on the show today. Thank a, you. A grand lucky number seven. You can get number the, seven. You can get the trend report at bombwhiteman.com. That's B A U M W H I T E M A N.com. You can read 2017 and all years past to see how Michael and his partner has done. Michael, anything you'd like to say? Uh, one last exciting thing that you're hopeful for that will resound with us in 2017. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> May we all eat well and survive it. Perfect. Well, thanks for joining Perfect. us. Um, we are excited to be back for a brand new season of Snacky Tunes. We will be back next week with the chef from Underbelly. And thanks for tuning in. See you next week. Thank you. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.